The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, Jason. Hello, Joni. Here we are. Week this, number... This is episode 60. That's awesome. Yep. We are in the second year. We're and... in our golden, our golden age, if you will. <laughs> exactly. And this is episode 60. And I, you know, Steve, bless his heart, really follows the news a mm-hmm. lot in terms of what's happening with the um, opioid epidemic. And I have to just give a shout out to my husband because he is our, he is the wind beneath our wings. He is our <laughs> unsung hero. He is the guy who you know, finds people to interview on the podcast and sends us articles. And, you know, I don't, he does it for me as well, because I'm a performer and a singer, and he's my biggest fan. But, you know, so he doesn't get to have a voice on the podcast. We don't typically interview him on the podcast. But he really does have a passion, just like I do to, Mm -hmm. you know, reach people. And he tells me the stats, and he emails you the stats, like Mm -hmm. every week, or the metrics on how many downloads we have and such. And, um, Anyway, just a, a shout out to my yeah, husband. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's great that he uh, he he regularly sends regular. I can't even speak. He regularly sends me links to uh, kind of what's happening in the world of um, the world of addiction, especially when it comes to opioid addiction and marijuana. I'm gonna say it, yep. marijuana addiction. Yep. He sends me a lot of stuff about it because you know we're. I don't know we're gonna get so much. You know what for this, but I'm gonna say it. That's I've okay. Wanted to say this for a while. We are on the verge of a marijuana epidemic. Oh, great. Jeff, well, I, I mean, that, that's just my opinion. You mean because it's like legalized it. in states and states are going, ooh, yeah, let's legalize recreational marijuana. Nobody considers alcoholism or the, or alcohol any kind of epidemic because it's, oh, it's legal and it's a social lubricant. And what's wrong with, you know, slipping out of these wet clothes and into a dry martini? And, you know, it's like, oh, my God, like, really, you have to realize alcohol is one of the most detrimental drugs that we have out there and it's widely used widely consumed it's it's totally okay societally and you know culturally it's a normal thing and we have a major problem with alcohol and you know i know we talked about it a few weeks ago and alcohol is also considered one of the gateway drugs into addiction and so we're doing the same thing with marijuana because we're normalizing it. it's becoming right. a normal and amy ronshausen has said that yep uh you know we're normalizing part we're normalizing a drug as part of our society and the millennials growing up now are growing up with marijuana being like this like benign like okay thing when i was growing up if my mom had caught me smoking weed, it would have been awful for me. I, would, yeah. I don't know if I would have survived it or I would have had the imprint of a shoe on my behind. Yeah. I, it would have been, you know, it was it was like, no, you don't smoke weed. That's not good. That's a drug, blah, blah, blah. And now we're like flipping the script Yep. and saying, oh, this is just a normal part of our society. Mommy and daddy like to unwind after a long day and eat some gummy bears. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... Anyway, well, so we have this. Uh, well, we, you and I, oh. what if if nothing else, we are willing to embrace controversies involving addiction. Yes, and um, you know, we've just had the last two episodes talking about how the argument for addiction not being a disease. Right. And in fact, you and I don't agree that it's a disease. Nope. But um, the person that we are going to interview today has a slightly different viewpoint. Yeah, which is and, okay. Uh, which is totally is, fine. Which is okay. So the person that we're going to interview today um, is Dr. Faye Jamali. Mm-hmm. And she was a practicing anesthesiologist and became addicted to narcotics. And... I think her story is interesting because we've said over and over again that 
addiction knows no uh, race, religion, creed, economic Nothing. status, or anything. And her story is definite evidence of that. Mm-hmm. And she's now gone on to, she's clean and been clean and sober since 2008, so mm-hmm. for 10 years. And now she's now wanting to tell her story. So mm-hmm. let's listen to her story. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Jamali. Um, I just, I really appreciate you being willing to be on the podcast with us and to share your story. And while I have given a little bit of your background, tell us your story, because this is what you're doing these days is telling your story. Yes. um, Let me start off by thanking you for having me on. Um, I share my story, not just because I like to hear myself talk, but I really hope that um, it will help someone out there. Um, so uh, my story, briefly, um, I uh, found myself to be the most unusual person to have ever gotten addicted to narcotics. I um, was uh, 40 years old, anesthesiologist, having practiced for over 15 years at the time with two small children, a husband who's also a physician. I had no history of previous problems with heavy drinking or using any kind of drugs. Um, Heck, I even graduated UC Berkeley without ever trying pot. So that's how naive I was (laughs) to this world. Um, As a full-time physician, a soccer mom, just not the typical person you would think that would end up having problems with opioids. Um, I definitely never thought in a million years that I would find myself here. Uh, It all started at my, I had a joint birthday party for my children um, in Oakland, California, and I went to go pick up the goodie bags from my car, and um, I slipped. I was wearing these very slippery sandals, and I broke my wrist. Um, ending, ended up having a couple of surgeries. This was back in, let's say, 2007. And um, at the time, uh, after the surgery, uh, the orthopedic surgeon gave me a big bottle of, I think it was Vicodin. Um, we were taught as physicians and um, as anesthesiologists all throughout my residency um, back then that you treated pain aggressively. Post-surgical pain, we were told if it's treated aggressively with narcotics, the chance of any kind of addiction is minimal. And we were uh, advised and encouraged to aggressively treat the medication, so the, the pain with lots of medication. And so I wasn't surprised when he gave me a huge bottle of Vicodin, and he also was trying to be... Um, I don't know, helpful by saying, hey, you don't need to call me for a refill. Here's a big bottle. So um, went home with that. I took it as directed every three to four hours. Um, but I noticed something interesting. When I took the medication, um, I also felt like eh, things didn't stress me up, stress me out as much. I uh, It just kind of smoothed the edges. Uh, life was pretty hectic, two small children, a full-time career. I wasn't a drinker, so for me, it felt like, oh, it's like having a glass of wine, I guess. This is what people talk about, just kind of smooths the edges. And I think that's where um, it started muddying the water for me, because um, my pain got better, but, you know, if I was having a stressful day, I thought, oh, you know what, if I take one of these pills, 
it's going to be fine. I'll feel much better. And I did. Things just didn't bother me. Um, I also had a very long history of bad uh, migraines. I had undergone every treatment you could think of, Botox injections in my scalp, um, medications. Uh, Once in a while, I would end up in an ER and get an injection, um, not very often, but maybe twice a year. So um, one day at work, I was having a really, really bad migraine. It was the end of the shift. And um, as anesthesiologists, at the end of our shift, we um, take whatever, you know, leftover narcotics we have, and we waste them through this process, through the machine called the Pixis. And I was in the bathroom, end of the shift, and I thought, oh, my God, i got to go down to the ER. This is really bad. And um, felt in my pocket, and I had the waste still that I had to go take care of. And I thought, this is the exact same medication that they're going to give me in the ER in I'm a physician. I know how, what, how to inject. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to inject myself with this. And I did it. The headache went away, and I felt this horrible guilt of, I have just crossed this line that should have never, ever been crossed. Mm. Um, I, I thought, never again, you know. Fast forward next day, I have another migraine. I tended to get them cyclically uh, during a certain time of the month, and I thought, oh, I know exactly what to do. That worked really well yesterday. So I went into the bathroom, end of my shift again, and um, injected, and this time I had this intense feeling of euphoria. It wasn't just like getting rid of the pain, but this immense euphoria, and I... I really believe that's when my brain got hijacked. Mm -hmm. It was bizarre. I found myself being very angry at, oh, my God, all these years I have had access to something this amazing and never used it. (laughs) That's bizarre (laughs) thinking looking back. Mm -hmm. But that's what I thought. I was like, you're such an idiot. All these years you could have been feeling this amazing. Um. So, you know, that's when I think it just got crazy. Um, So over a three-month period, um, I upped my dosage tenfold. It was um, for someone who had had no previous history of dealing with narcotics, I showed rare talent for being an addict. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was frightening, scary. I didn't know what was happening to me. Um, every time I did it, in, you know, I would do it on after work hours. I would do it when I was at home, when no, was, no one was around. It wasn't a daily thing, but it was bad enough that I knew that I had to stop. This is crazy. I would come up with all these different scenarios of how I'm going to stop, but then somehow I would find myself craving it, doing it, and then rationalizing it and saying, you know what, I I can't be addicted because I'm a doctor. I'm just, you know, I can stop whenever I want. I'm just dealing with stressful situations and just rationalizing it and and never, never, you know, I I had nobody in my life or in my family who had ever dealt with addiction. Mm. Um, So I didn't even know what was really happening to me. Um, I also felt this tremendous shame and didn't want to admit it, didn't want to get help because then I would be admitting it. Um, 
but it, it, I just, every time I would come up with ways to try and stop myself, I used to inject in my arms, and I thought, you know what, I'll just put Band-Aids over my arms where I used to inject, and I'll put my children's name on the Band-Aid. And I would tell myself, look, if you inject, it's as if you're injecting into your kid's eyeballs. Like, I was trying to make it as gruesome as possible to prevent myself. Right. And the craving would hit. I would rip off that Band-Aid and inject and then feel lower than ever. Like, what kind of person does that? You told yourself that these are your children. So it's, it was this spiral of you're going lower and lower. You would maybe go up two steps and drop down four steps. And I just couldn't figure out a way out of it. Um, I think subliminally, I, subconsciously, I was trying to get caught because I literally would go to work, you know, at 8 o'clock at night, say hi to the nurses in the recovery room, go straight up to the, the narcotic machine in my civilian clothes and just check out medications with my name and my fingerprint on the machine. Wow. Um, and I would go use. Uh, so... One day after, as I was working, they said, Dr. Jamali, um, we need to see you. And I went into this conference room, and there was this five or eight people sitting there, and like they said, here you go. These are all these records. It looks like you are, have been diverting narcotics. And at that moment, I just... Um, I didn't even have the presence of mind to say anything. I just kept saying, uh, I don't know, I don't know. And they said, just hand over your badge. You're not coming to work until we, um, we're starting an investigation. Mm. And I had to go pick up my children from daycare and school. And I was just like, what just happened in my life? Did I just lose my job? I, it was bizarre. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? Tomorrow I'll just pretend I'm going to work? I was trying to come up with, like, how do I pretend things are still the same? What lie do I have to tell, you know? And um, I, uh, interestingly enough, that night I had a marriage counseling session because, meanwhile, I think my marriage was falling apart, too. And um, this uh, at the session, the therapist said, you know, Faye, you look like you're really down. Is something going on? And... This was at the end of the hour session, and I said, "Yeah, oh, no, it's not a big deal. It's just like some narcotics are missing at work, and they think I might have something to do with it." And my husband comes straight to my defense, like, "What? Are they crazy? You don't even drink?" Because he never knew. Nobody wow. knew. It was all in private and in hiding that I would do this. And so I felt awful. I'm like, "Oh God, here's this guy coming to my defense," and. Anyway, we went home that night after I put the kids to bed. Um, my husband said, Faye, is there anything you want to tell me? And I just, I couldn't even look at him. I just rolled up my arms. I showed him the track marks, and I thought, this is it. This is as low as it gets. He's going to, we're already having trouble in our marriage. He's going to kick me out, take the children. I have no job. I mean, literally, it was a point where I couldn't feel any lower. And I thought, here it comes. And instead, um, he just picked me up in his arms and said, sweetie, why don't you tell me? We'll get you help. Oh, wow. And in that moment, in that moment, I just, I felt this, I've never loved him more. (laughs) And I also felt like, you know what, as horrible as it is, just saying the truth 
owning the truth is the beginning of something changing. And um, the next day I called work. I told them about it. And um, I... um, I, uh, there was a psychiatrist at work at my hospital who was the head of our chemical dependency and rehabilitation program, and um, he had treated me years ago for postpartum depression, so he kind of knew me as a psychiatrist way before my addiction. He was shocked because he's just like, you know, I have treated you for years, and you've never exhibited any tendency for addictive behavior. And so he just felt really like, I am so sorry this happened. It's going to be a long road, but we're going to get you help. And so um, uh, the next day I um, signed up and I went to a, um, he, he thought I could go to an outpatient recovery program because as horrible as my addiction was, as far as I used to inject, I never used street drugs. And it was a short period of time, about three months, where I had uh, done this injection. And so he thought overall it would be best if I would go spend all day at a recovery program, but come home at night. So, you know, I had two small children and a husband who worked full time. So for me, it was great. I um, had the resources to get the help I need, a, a program tailor made for me. And, um, I just started this journey in recovery, and I took a year off from work. Um, I um, it was very interesting. The first day in uh, the um, program, you know, I was sitting there, you know, dressed nicely. I was wearing this pearl necklace, and this guy sitting next to me is like, "Hey, so what are you here for? You're a drinker?" And I looked at him. I'm like, "No, I shoot up narcotics." <laughs> <laughs> he just looked at me like, boy, you don't fit the profile. But see, that's just it. It, it happen, can happen to anybody. And in all honesty, my first day there at recovery, I had no idea what recovery meant. I thought, okay, I come do this thing for a few days or a few weeks, and I go back to my old life, right? right. Like you have a sore throat. They start you on antibiotics. You take it seven days, and then you're done. Right. I, that's basically what I thought it meant. I had no idea um, what recovery was, and I am so grateful that I got a chance to just focus on it for one year. And um, what it did is not only give me a chance to um, have a, you know, get over my addiction to narcotics, but a toolbox full of tools where I can use to live life well. Right. I didn't just get my old life back. I got a much better version of my old life back. You know, in recovery, I've been in recovery since um, 2008. I've had breast cancer. I've had six operations for that. Um, I had (laughs) my mother almost died from a stroke, um, almost got divorced, found out about an affair my husband had had. I dealt with all of these things without ever having to numb myself to the pain that comes with each of them. It's not that life became rosy after recovery. It's just that life happens. There are good days. There are bad days. It was just more like instead of numbing myself to the pain, to actually feel the pain and get to the other side of the pain. Right. You found um, better ways to so deal with am, life than, than narcotics. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it just has been... Um, an amazing gift in my life, and um, to 
and especially now with this conversation about opioid addictions, it's in the in the news. It's I just feel like uh, you know I was extremely fortunate. I had the resources to have a very good recovery program, and if we don't deal with this and not treat it as just like some moral failing or an ethical failing on part of these people who are addicted, instead treating it as a disease that it is. It's a hijacking of the brain and come at it from a disease model instead of a judgment model and put the resources in place for it. That would be amazing because unless we do that, we're going to lose a whole generation to this disease. This is not just something that is a quick fix. We're going to need lifelong tools to give people and recovery programs to be able to help people get through this. Well, one of the things that you talked, you said about your recovery program, which I think um, is notable, and that is that, you know, you took a year to go through the recovery program. Yeah. And so many of the programs that are available to people are 12 step, 28 days, because that's all that insurance will cover. And well, you know, I wasn't in that center for a whole year. What I did was it was um, an outpatient program for, I think it was three to four months. And then I kind of did continuing programs, went back there a lot, and then got myself hooked up with a professionals in recovery program, met with my sponsor every day, did meditation, did yoga, you know, just focused on my life um, for a, a year. And at the end of the year, my job said, you can only be gone one year. Oh, okay. And you need to come back. Okay. So, and I was terrified. I didn't know whether I could go back to anesthesia because that was the drug that almost killed me. Right. Could I be around it and not have that pull? And I didn't know. Um, And so with the psychiatrist who had taken care of me before, who um, was very much involved in addiction medicine, we came up with a plan. He started me on an opioid blocker, naltrexone, and um, I was not taking any overnight call. The first three months, I had another professional with me at all times as a proctor. Mm. Um, I During this time, I had decided, even after I had finished that 28-day program, to have myself randomly tested for the entire year, even before I went to work, because I wanted to show a, a record of me being clean. Right. Um, so when I went back to work, I also con- continued that um, random uh, once a week, at least testing. It was, it was four times a month. Sometimes it would be twice one week and none the other, but it was random and um, did that. And you know what? The miracle was (laughs) that first day when I was there and I was drawing up the medications for the patient and it had no pull for me. That was the miracle of recovery. That's great. And as a physician, I don't believe in miracles, but this was pretty amazing. This drug where I had no control over before, I would draw it up and it didn't seem any different than the antibiotic that I drew up or the, you know, um, blood thinner. It was just a medication that had nothing to do with me. It was the patients. But I also knew that recovery was something that you have to practice daily. And in some way, being in anesthesia forced me to practice it daily because I had to deal with that drug every day. And I would um, actually 
go to the bathroom where I used to use. I would make myself go in that bathroom to just remember and never forget what had happened. Right. Um, because, you know, it, it, you can't say, oh, it was just a fluke. It was just something that happened before. No, no. It, it, this is like I am will forever be an addict, but I'm an addict in recovery. And as long as I do my recovery every day, I can have a chance of an amazing life. I mean, everything I have today is only because of recovery. Without this, I wouldn't have my job or my family or my two children because I would be dead. Right. I think Jason wanted to chime in with something here. Jason, go ahead. Well, I thought it was sure. very, uh, th- Hi, Dr. Jamali. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting that you brought... Hi, Jason. Hello. I thought it was very interesting that <laughs> you brought up the idea of... There's this idea of what a drug addict looks like. There's this idea of what a drug addict comes from. They're in dirty clothes. They're disheveled, unshaven, dirty. uh, Absolutely. Shooting up under a bridge downtown. Oh, God, I just quoted Mm -hmm. Hot Chili Peppers. (laughs) Shooting up (laughs) under a bridge downtown. And, um, you know, people have this certain idea created of what a drug addict looks like. And, you know, as the opioid epidemic kind of took hold and started to really develop and pick up steam, you know, you didn't have a quote-unquote typical drug addict. You had very upstanding, mm-hmm. well-educated, well-groomed mm-hmm. people becoming completely hooked on opioids. And it, it had, people, have yep. to, people have to shift the idea of what a drug addict looks like because, you know, my, you know, my parents were always the ones that were like, oh, you got to watch out for the, the bum coming up to the car. He locked the doors. It's a drug addict. Yeah, it's like, no, no, absolutely. no. It's like my father, yeah. my father's a physician. And I know for a fact that mm-hmm. there are doctors out there that struggle with addiction. And it's something I think needs absolutely. to be talked about more than it is because addiction is not one of those things that just affects a certain type of person. It's not a morality issue. It's not an ethical issue. It's not anything other than the fact, and you experienced this, as you said, you got high one day, you used, and the euphoria felt as though it took every issue, every problem, every concern or whatever away for you. And I always say, Mm -hmm. you know, you get hooked on drugs because they do something for you that nothing else can do. And mm-hmm. it's just a shining example of how it's just this non-prejudicial thing. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, how you're raised, or who raised you, nope. or where you're from. It, it matters if you yeah. just got that that little switch that gets turned on by the drug, and you're you're gonna go absolutely on your way to addiction. And so, you know, I want I want to applaud yeah. you on your years of sobriety. It's absolutely amazing because. I always say it doesn't matter how you get clean or what you do to get clean as long as you get clean and as long as you can turn your addiction yeah. into something helpful for somebody else. Um, you know, I went through heroin yeah. and cocaine. I went through heroin and mm-hmm. cocaine addiction. And so wow. I gave my life over to helping other people get through it because I went through it and I went through it bad. And I don't think anyone out there needs mm-hmm. to experience what you and I have both experienced. It's, it's, it's an unnecessary yep. pain. Although for both of us, it seems as though it's put us on the right track to hopefully change the world, you know? Exactly. And, and that's, yeah, you know, that's why we wanted yeah. you on the podcast or why we invited you to be on the podcast, Dr. <laughs> Jamali, because it does help to break the, you know, the stigma, not the stigma, but the, the view that people have on what does an addict look like? It is you a know? stigma. Absolutely. Stigma. It absolutely yeah. is a stigma. And it can happen to anybody. And you, yeah. you make that very clear. You know, I think of addiction as an equal opportunity killer. Exactly. It doesn't yeah. 
care, what, where you came from, uh, what your education level is. My first 12-step meeting, I had this guy who was speaking, and he had been homeless for years, kind of your typical scruffy-looking guy. And when he told this story, it was my story. Mm-hmm. It was exactly the same dark place I had been. So it's the disease that's the commonality. Okay, and and for me, that was just like a light bulb went in my head. And uh, in order to treat this, we need to take away the stigma. I feel extremely um, passionate about getting my story out there. I quit my job as an anesthesiologist about two years ago, Um, and it was... Uh, I had to go through five years of probation through the medical board because California um, decided in their wisdom not to have a physician health program. Every other state in the country except for three have a physician health, uh, wellness program, health program, where as long as you stay in recovery and you're doing your steps and you're you know monitoring and all that, your name doesn't get publicized and you don't get put on probation um, blasted on the Internet. But mine, within, you know, I had already been back at work for a year, and they decided to finally got around to my case two years later, and they put me on probation and, you know, had to take um, uh, a weekend course on ethics as if it was an ethical failing on my part. I had to do 40 hours of continuing medical education and addiction medicine, which was fascinating. It was great. I learned a lot. Um, but the thing was, Anytime someone would Google Faye Jamali, that is the first thing that showed up, right. that I'm a person who had used drugs. It says nothing about my recovery, right. just that. Thankfully, I was in a hospital where it was a HMO and I didn't have to contract with outside insurance. But for other physicians who get caught up in this, they lose patients because the insurance won't cover them. They won't provide them with patients because they're on probation. So it's a livelihood. So do you think someone, the physicians who are struggling with addiction are just going to go underground? Rather than get the help and get well, you end up with more impaired physicians. Right. So and it's a public safety issue. And exactly. we've been trying to, like, to really get back to a physician wellness program. And the success rate of physicians in recovery is 85%. Wow. That is vastly better than the general population. There are quite a few reasons for that. One is the resources that physicians have. Two is that I spent over 20 years to get this medical degree. So you will do everything to hold on to your degree. So you're more motivated to do this. So that's the thing. If people have good jobs, they're willing to, and their recovery is, is like, okay, if I do my recovery, I can hold on to my job rather than just being fired for it. You know, so these were the things that, that help physicians do that. Um, and it, the other thing, though, one of the reasons I ended up quitting anesthesia, I, I finished my probation. I was like, fine. I showed them I can do this. But during the time where I was in recovery and in anesthesia, I asked my hospital, hey, can I go talk to residents and young physicians about the risks of addiction? And they were like, well, no, you know, because, you know, then they will know here you are a physician in recovery and you're working for us in this hospital and they weren't sure about how that would look for the hospital. And I was just floored. And, you know, I was extremely grateful that they had 
given me the, my job back and they were supportive of my recovery. Um, but, you know, after I finished and I left anesthesia, I thought, you know what? No one's holding me back. What, I'm going to tell my story. I don't care if people judge me. You know, I, I put it on my Facebook page. I had done this podcast and I just put it out there. And you'd be amazed how supportive people are. And for people who want to judge me, you know, that's their issue. I'm okay with that. If I can just help one person, I could care less about the judgment I get from 10 other people. Exactly. So, and that's and that's why we do this podcast, because yeah. we figure if we can help yes. one person and help one person mm-hmm. with your story, then it's all worth it. Everything, you know, that's gone before. I've interviewed other You know, people who are spokespersons in the area, a fellow, you know, who was an alcoholic, Mm -hmm. and he really feels like he has turned his addiction into something that will help others. Mm. And that's what I think you're doing. And we really, really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast today, because I think that your story is one that will resonate, I think, with our listeners. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. It has been my pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. So that was really quite the story that she has. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I I absolutely think so, too. I mean, I think, you know, several things I take away from her story, um, a few of which we've talked about before, but I think, you know, initially just like, you know, very well done to Dr. Jamali for, you know, getting clean and sober And staying that way for eight years. I mean, you know, as we know, that's quite an accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, you take a person that's been using on a daily basis every single day um, and even, you know, injecting drugs and taking them to a, a, a place where they can be sober on a daily basis. It's a feat in of itself because when a person's addicted to drugs, that's your survival mechanism. That's how you get through every day. And to even get a few months sober, it's an immense, immense win because you did, you're doing something, you know, against your own survival every day compulsively, which is completely out of your control. And then you stop and you stay stopped. It's, it's huge. And, you know, well, I'm not necessarily personally in agreement with the disease concept and 12 step didn't work for me. I'm glad it worked for her. Right. And I'm the type of person that says, you know what? Get clean. Get sober. I don't care how you do it. Um, I know that Narconon's modality works for most people, but I, I'm glad she's just clean. I'm glad she's sober. I'm glad she's not only gotten her life back, but a better life. And now she's using her experience to help other people. Agreed. And I think that that's so commendable. I can imagine, you know, not being a a former addict myself, I can only imagine that for a lot of former addicts, that's a part of their life that they would prefer to, like, never have to revisit. And so I really appreciate people like you, like Dr. Jamali, like Craig DeRoche, like all of, all of the graduates who go on to work at Narconon, I really appreciate you for wanting to, you know, instead of just putting that behind you and never looking at it again, but really taking it and using it to help other people. And she's going um, in the direction of helping other doctors who become addicted and yeah. probably rationalize it, you know, up one side and down the other. And I think, I really think that that's huge. 
Absolutely. And I think there's probably more doctors that are struggling with addiction than we actually know about or would guess um, are struggling with it. Because when you're a doctor, you have to keep in mind that if you come out about your addiction, there's a possibility you'll have disciplinary action, you'll get stripped of your license in the very way you make money to survive. And there's so many other things that go into it. I think it's probably a real hush-hush thing amongst doctors because like Dr. Jamalia said, she had all this kind of like unbridled access to narcotics. Right. And it was just as easy as her taking medication down to the la- to the pharmacy to get disposed of. And she could just swipe a couple of vials and use it. And who- no one's the wiser. But what people have to understand is addiction starts off slow. You right. start off getting away with it. You start off at a level where you're still functional. But what people need to understand is that as any and as, as anything in life does and any bad situation does, if you don't handle it immediately, it's going to get worse. It's going to, you know, accelerate to a point where you don't have control over it, where you're doing things that put your survival in jeopardy, where you're doing things that put your job in jeopardy and all sorts of things. And it gets to a point where you don't have that power of choice to say, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. And so um, I think that doctors are probably, you know, majorly struggling with addiction, but it's not really talked about. I think so, too. I think so, too. And that's why I think what she's doing is so valuable. You know, there were three things um, that I took away from her story that we've talked about over and over again. And I just want to reiterate one is that addiction can happen to anyone. Here was a very, very mm-hmm. successful doctor. And, you know, we've talked about this many times. Addiction knows no boundaries when it comes to race, color, creed, religion, economic status, education, nothing. I mean, addiction can affect anyone as it did with her. Secondly, I think that, you know, she said while she did a 28 step or 28 day program, she augmented that with a year's worth of therapy and work to get clean. And, you know, not to, again, not to dis the 12-step program because it works for people, but 28 days could quite possibly just not be enough for someone to get completely clean. And as we've mentioned, it even at Narcanon, which has a, you know, scientific-based technology, you know, it can take you know, six months for someone to get completely clean. And so that yeah. was that was the second thing I took away. And then the third thing that she said so eloquently is that life has its ups and downs. You have good days, you have bad days. But the way to deal with that is not with drugs and alcohol to numb them. The way to deal with it is to confront right. it and get to the root of whatever's causing those down days and handle it so that you end up with more up days than down days. And those, I think those three things are absolutely, you know, valuable. And we've said those over and over again on the podcast. So I think those were good. Yeah, totally agree. Yep. And you know, just, um, you know, Steve had noted that you had a lot of the graduates from Narcanon who've been clean and sober for many years posting on Facebook about the program. (laughs) And it was so funny. I did a post saying hi to the graduates about two years ago. Yep. And recently one of my graduates decided to comment on it 
And what it did is it stuck it back in everyone's news feeds on Facebook. And all of a sudden it like exploded. I had graduates all over the country who have been here saying, hello, hi, how are you? We're doing great. This and that. And it was really cool to see. The other cool part was a lot of them listened to the podcast, which is fabulous. I think you said yeah, someone named so Jenna was listening, right? Shout out. Yeah. What was that? Was it Jenna that you d- gave a shout Jenna. out to? Or one? Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah. that. <laughs> she, uh, she mentioned that she liked the podcast. So Jenna, if you're listening, thank you. Keep listening. Share it with everyone you can. And to any other graduates out there who are listening to this right now, we're all really proud of you guys. We're totally proud. And here's another shout out to anybody that's listening to the podcast. If you would like to tell your story on the podcast, just, you know, reach out to either Jason or me and we'll get back to you and we'll get it scheduled because your stories are so powerful and resonate with so many people. Um, I remember Jason, when we were at, when I was at your graduation, I sat next to Erica and Erica stood up and said she did the Narconon program 25 years ago and she's still clean and sober. And I'm going to definitely reach out to her because I would love to interview her and get her story. Um, just very powerful. These stories are just awesome. And thank you yeah. to all of the graduates. It's a huge, yeah. yeah, it's a huge deal. It's a huge, huge deal. And um, anyone who wants to share their stories with us know that you can do it over Skype. You don't have to come to Florida. That's right. And um, but we you can, can if schedule you want. it and do it that way. <laughs> yep. But you can come yeah. if you want to. <laughs> if you want. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. Okay. Well, Jason, this was a great podcast episode and we will do it again next week. You got it. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 